Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and capital markets regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on significant developments in U.S. corporate governance and capital markets regulation and CII's related advocacy activities. This update covers a period from December 2nd, 2022 to January 4th, 2023. The following is my top 10 list of events over that period. Number 10, on December 7th, the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission reopened the comment period for proposed amendments to modernize and improve the disclosure required about companies' repurchases of equity securities, often referred to as buybacks. The SEC decided to reopen the comment period because after the proposed amendments were published for public comment, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 was enacted. That law imposes upon certain corporations a non-deductible excise tax equal to 1% of the fair market value of any stock of the corporation repurchased during the taxable year. As a result, SEC staff prepared a memorandum that discusses potential economic effects of the new excise tax that may be helpful in evaluating the proposed amendments. That memorandum is available for review as part of the public comment file. The amendments were initially proposed in December 2021 The public comment period will remain open until January 11, 2023. Number nine, on December 15th, U.S. Securities Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler touted the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board's announcement that it was able to inspect and investigate completely company audits of PCAOB-registered public accounting firms headquartered in China and Hong Kong. Chair Gensler said this marks the first time the Chinese authorities allowed access for complete inspections and investigations meeting U.S. standards as required under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. In August 2022, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the China Securities Regulatory Commission, and China's Ministry of Finance signed a statement of protocol which provides a framework for PCAOB inspections and investigations of audit firms based in China and Hong Kong in cases where the firms are auditing Chinese companies that are listed on U.S. exchanges. Despite the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board's recent successful inspections, Chair Gensler warned that a lot of work remains to protect investors and ensure ongoing compliance. Chair Gensler specifically raised three warnings. One, The Public Company Accounting Oversight Board must have continued access for complete inspections and investigations in 2023 and beyond. Number two, registered public accounting firms headquartered in China and Hong Kong must work to strengthen audit quality. And three, Chinese-based companies that access U.S. capital markets must provide specific prominent disclosures about the heightened operational and legal risks they face. Number eight, on December 16th, The Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, Janet L. Yellen, convened a meeting of the Financial Stability Oversight Council. At that meeting, the Financial Stability Oversight Council unanimously approved its 2022 annual report examining significant market developments and potential emerging threats to U.S. financial stability. That report concluded that risks to the U.S. economy and financial stability have increased amid heightened geopolitical, and economic shocks and inflation, even as the financial system has exhibited resilience. The report also outlines potential vulnerabilities related to bank holding companies, 
investment funds, central counterparties, financial market structures, cybersecurity, and third-party service providers. The report identifies three main channels through which hedge funds can create risks to financial stability by one, causing or contributing to market disruptions through large asset liquidations, two, transmitting risk to counterparties that are large, highly interconnected financial institutions, and three, reducing financial intermediation, which could, under certain conditions, potentially impair financial functioning. Observing that over the last year, the Financial Stability Oversight Council's hedge fund working group has developed an interagency risk monitoring system to assess hedge fund-related risk to U.S. financial stability, the Council will continue to review the findings of the hedge fund working group as they are developed. And the Financial Stability Oversight Council recommends that the Securities Exchange Commission and other relevant federal regulators consider whether additional steps should be taken to address these vulnerabilities. In addition, the Financial Stability Oversight Council emphasizes the importance of agencies continuing to enforce existing rules and regulations applicable to crypto assets and offered two related recommendations. One, Congress should enact legislation to provide rulemaking authority for federal financial regulators over the spot market for crypto assets that are not securities. And two, member agencies should continue to build capabilities related to data and the analysis, monitoring, supervision, and regulation of digital asset activities. Number seven, on December 6th, the minority staff of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee released a report entitled The New Emperors, Responding to the Growing Influence of the Big Three Asset Managers. The report is largely predicated on the Senate Banking Committee minority staff's inference that funds employing passive buy-sell strategies should also be minimally engaged or entirely disengaged from the companies they own. The report faults the big three asset managers, i.e. BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, for engaging with companies on behalf of investor clients on a host of issues, including carbon emission reduction, racial equity audits, gender and racial pay differentials, and board diversity. Recommendations of the report include reviewing whether to amend 13G rules to mandate disclosure of concessions negotiated by purportedly passive investors, and whether to amend 13D and 13G requirements to reflect developments in corporate governance, including the shift to maturity voting, proxy access, and say on bay votes. Number six, on December 8th, the Subcommittee on Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets of the Committee on Financial Services of the U.S. House of Representatives held a hearing entitled ESG&W, Examining Private Sector Disclosure of Workforce Management, Investment, and Diversity Data. A number of the witnesses testifying at the hearing indicated that despite the amendments adopted by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission in November 2020, calling on employers to disclose human capital measures or objectives that a company deems material to its business, to date, the disclosures that are currently being provided by companies are inadequate and are not standardized. For example, Cambria Allen Ratzlaff, Managing Director and Head of Investor Strategies at Just Capital, testified that even with this amendment, 
the new human capital reporting requirements lack detailed and specific requirements, which leaves it to the discretion of companies themselves to determine what data to disclose. She pointed out that only 15% of S&P 500 firms report total human capital investments in relation to salaries, bonuses, and other benefits. Ms. Alan Ratzlaff cited results of a survey conducted by her organization that found 93% of Americans favor large companies releasing the wage ranges of different types of jobs at their company, and 89% favor the release of minimum wage rates for frontline and entry-level workers. She argued that clear, standardized requirements also would help companies. Colleen Hannesberg, a professor at Stanford Law School, said U.S. accounting principles provide virtually no information on the knowledge, skills, competencies, and attributes of firms' workforces. She said that investors typically cannot even determine total workforce costs, much less identify how much a firm invests in its employees. To correct this situation, Professor Honigsberg recommended that managers be required to disclose in the management discussion analysis section of the company's Form 10-K what portion of labor costs they view as an investment and why. Managers also should be required to give investors quantitative tabular disclosure containing information on the number of employees, their total compensation, and turnover rates. And the income statement should be disaggregated so that investors have detailed information about specific operating costs, including labor. Professor Honigsberg asserted that she believes that increased transparency around intangible assets such as human capital will better allow shareholders to access public companies' investments and their people, just as our transparency around investment in tangible assets as long facilitated analysis of public companies' investments in their physical operations. Shivaram Rajkapal, the Roy Bernard Kesterin T.W. Burns Professor of Accounting and Auditing at Columbia Business School, pointed out that physical and tangible assets are now less important compared to human capital, especially in a rapidly digitizing corporate America. Professor Rajapal said it's more important now than ever for companies to disclose quantitative data related to salary, bonus, pension, stock awards, option awards, non-equity incentive compensation, pension and deferred compensation, healthcare, training, and other costs. He suggested these expenses be disclosed separately for full-time employees, part-time employees, and contingent workers. He also asked for quantitative data related to tenure, employee turnover, and number of workers for these three categories of labor. Mr. Raj Kapal explained that we believe that such disclosure will enable investors to assess the financial sustainability of companies better and hence improve the efficiency of stock prices and allocation of capital to public companies. He added the cost of compiling such data is unlikely to be significant given that it is already likely prepared by firms to send tax statements to their workforce. Brand Siegel president of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, testified that the COVID-19 pandemic and its impacts on the economy and the workforce helped demonstrate the importance of a company's recruitment, treatment, and retention of workers in terms of its short-term success and long-term viability. In addition to recommending disclosure of much of the same information suggested by Professor Rajkapal, Ms. Siegel suggested the SEC carefully consider what qualitative disclosures would be valuable to investors around other material workforce factors, 
such as worker health and safety and worker training policies. Andrew Vollmer, former Deputy Director Counsel at the SEC and now a senior affiliated scholar at George Mason University's Mercatus Center, opposed new SEC rules on human capital management. Mr. Vollmer told the subcommittee that the extent of the need for additional human capital disclosure, especially the need for detailed numerical or statistical data, is open to question. Mr. Vollmer said the SEC's 2020 human capital reporting requirements did not require more specifics because the SEC's approach afforded flexibility for companies to tailor their disclosure to their own circumstances. He also told Ranking Member Representative Bill Heisinga of Michigan in response to a question that the SEC may not have sufficient expertise in workforce or human capital and therefore may not be the appropriate entity to determine disclosure standards in those areas. Mr. Volner argued that quantitative prescriptions and new accounting rules would apply to all reporting companies, reduce the flexibility of the current rule, and increase costs. More broadly, Mr. Volner said new reporting requirements would burden the capital formation process without sufficient offsetting benefits and prompt more private companies to not go public. Mr. Volmer concluded his testimony by recommending that the subcommittee instead focus his attention on improving the rules for raising capital and the SEC's internal operations and management. Number five, on December 4th, a federal district judge in Texas ruled against the National Association of Manufacturers and in favor of the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission, finding that the SEC's rescission of its 2020 proxy advice rule was not arbitrary and capricious. The rule was enacted under SEC Chair Jay Clayton and rescinded under SEC Chair Gary Gensler. In its July 2022 complaint, National Association of Manufacturers alleged that the SEC's decision to rescind the 2020 rule violated the Administrative Procedure Act. That argument centered around three issues. One, was the commission required provide a more detailed justification because the 2022 rescission reversed a prior policy position. Two, were the commission stated justifications for the 2022 rescission rational? And three, was the 2022 rescission procedurally valid? The judge found the SEC's rescission was within the bounds of reasoned decision-making. The ruling explained that, like it or not, changing political winds may factor into an agency's policy preference, but a court may not set aside an agency's policy-making decision solely because it might have been influenced by political considerations or prompted by an administration's priorities. Number four, on December 13th, the United States Supreme Court agreed to hear a case involving Slack Technologies' 2019 direct listing and whether one of the company's shareholders who owns unregistered shares in the company has legal standing to sue Slack for what he says was a misleading registration statement. Observers anticipate that the Supreme Court's consideration of this case may have broad implication, not only for the accountability of companies that go public through a direct listing, but also for the future of how private companies enter the public markets. The justices will decide if plaintiff Piaz Pirani, who purchased 250,000 shares in the software and communications company in a 2019 direct listing, 
needs to show he bought the registered shares under that allegedly misleading registration statement. Mr. Pirani claims that Slack's registration statement was misleading because it did not disclose the generous terms of Slack's agreements to compensate customers for service disruptions. Slack experienced an $8.2 billion revenue hit tied to service outages. Slack argues that Mr. Pirani's complaint lacks legal standing to sue under Sections 11 and 12 of the Securities Act of 1933 because he bought unregistered shares in the direct listing. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in September 2021 that Mr. Pirani does have standing to sue the company. The court said that blocking lawsuits by investors and direct listings would create a legal loophole that could incentivize companies to use this method of going public to avoid liability. Despite some concerns from CII, the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission authorized direct listings beginning in 2018, letting companies go public without selling shares to an initial public offering. A direct listing Instead, lets early investors sell their shares, both registered and unregistered, on a public exchange. After the sale, it's difficult to differentiate between registered and unregistered shares. Slack was among the first to offer shares in a direct listing after the SEC's approval of that process. More recently, CI has written letters to the SEC opposing the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ efforts relax certain requirements for companies conducting direct listings with the capital raise which is often referred to as primary direct listings. In those letters, CI raised concerns about primary direct listings potentially exacerbating the traceability problems that could prevent investors from being able to rely on protections under the federal securities laws when they incur losses as a result of material misrepresentations or omissions contained in companies' direct listings registration statements. Number three. On December 8th, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's Investor Advisory Committee held a meeting. The meeting included a session on corporate tax transparency that was moderated by James Andrus, Interim Managing Investment Director of Sustainable Investing at California Public Employees Retirement System. During that session, several speakers and panelists expressed the view that corporations need to provide investors with more information about the taxes they pay on a country-by-country basis. Elise Bean, former staff director and chief counsel of the U.S. Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, pointed to Apple as an example of how violations of international tax laws can affect a company's bottom line. She explained that in 2016, the European Commission ruled that Ireland granted illegal tax benefits to Apple and ordered the tech giant to pay 13 billion euro plus interest in unpaid Irish taxes from 2004 to 2014, to the Irish state. The Irish government then appealed the ruling, claiming there was no violation of Irish tax law and that the European Commission's action was an intrusion into Irish sovereignty as national tax policy is excluded from European Union treaties. In September 2018, Apple also appealed the ruling and placed 13 billion euro in an escrow account pending appeal. In July 2020, the European General Court struck down European Union tax decision as a legal ruling in favor of Apple. The European Commission appealed the decision before the European Court of Justice, and the $13 billion in escrow remains. John Bavakwa, Associate Professor and Associate Dean of Learning and Teaching 
at Monash Business School in Australia, described the tax disclosure requirements currently in place in Australia. He also briefed the committee on anticipated changes to those requirements that would include disclosure by multinational corporations of the amount of taxes paid on a country-by-country basis and mandatory reporting of material task risks to shareholders. He emphasized that any required disclosure on taxes should be mandatory and specific. Dave Rubset, Director of Capital Markets for the Global Reporting Initiative, explained how his organization sets tax reporting standards for companies of all sizes in all sectors. He said disclosure of this information helps investors detect companies' compliance with changing tax regulations, as well as risks tied to tax avoidance. Jason Ward, Principal Analyst at the Center for International Corporate Tax Accountability and Research, said the center is filing shareholder proposals asking companies to implement the Global Reporting Initiative's tax standards. One such proposal at Amazon was supported by 21% of the company's independent shareholders, and the Center for International Tax Accountability and Research also has filed similar proposals at Cisco, Microsoft, Chevron, Exxon, and ConocoPhillips. Mr. Ward said, I'm happy to see strongly shifting attitudes for tax transparency among institutional investors in North America. Kimberly Clausing, the Eric M. Zolt Chair in Tax Law and Policy at the University of California at Los Angeles, and a former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Tax Analysis at the U.S. Treasury Department, and Robert Wilson, an investment officer and research analyst at MFS Investment Management, both agreed that currently required disclosure on taxes in the United States is woefully inadequate and does not provide investors with the information they need to assess risks related to fluctuating tax regulations in different jurisdictions. Ryan Guru, Policy Director at the Financial Accountability and Corporate Tax Transparency Coalition, explained that the SEC has the explicit authority under the federal securities laws to require companies to disclose more information about the taxes they pay. He recommended that the SEC establish a framework and actual standards that would apply across markets. Sandra Peters, Senior Head of Global Financial Reporting at CFA Institute, cautioned that the end result of additional required reporting may be higher taxes paid by companies, which will ultimately be passed along to shareholders. Ms. Peters also said she thought Congress, U.S. Treasury Department, and the Financial Accounting Standards Board are better equipped than the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission to implement new tax reporting requirements. Number two, on December 14th, the United States Securities and Exchange Commission met and voted to issue a package of four rulemaking proposals related to U.S. equity market structure. Three of those four proposals include provisions that may be relevant to the Council of Institutional Investors' membership-approved policies and related public positions. The first of those three proposals, approved unanimously by the commissioners, would provide enhancements to monthly disclosures available to investors to assess the quality of trade execution for stocks listed on national exchanges. These disclosures are known as so-called Section 605 reports. Both amendments are meant to strengthen investors' ability to compare how well various market centers are executing trades. The amendments include six items. Number one, expanding the scope of any subject to disclosure. Number two, eliminating current exclusions 
of certain order types and sizes. Number three, updating order type categories and order size categories reported. Number four, overhauling timed execution categories. Number five, requiring changes to how realized spreads and price improvement statistics are reported. And number six, requiring a summary report. If finalized, the proposed changes would mark the first alteration of those reports since the 605 reports were introduced more than 20 years ago. Comments are due on this first proposal by the end of March or 60 days after Federal Register publication, whichever is later. The second proposal, also approved unanimously by the commissioners, would provide for amendments to regulation National Market System, or NMS, which is a set of rules passed in 2005 that sought to refine how all listed U.S. stocks are traded. The proposed amendments include the following two items. One, amending the tick sizes under Rule 612 to establish a variable minimum pricing increment model that would apply to both the quoting and the trading of the NMS stocks. And number two, reducing the access fee caps under Rule 610 of Regulation NMS in conjunction with the reduction of the minimum pricing increments that require national securities exchanges to make the amounts of all fees and rebates determinable at the time of execution. With respect to the second item, SEC Chair Gary Gensler highlighted that the proposed change brings greater transparency to the access fees charged and related rebates paid by exchanges. Explain that in today's markets, exchanges often rebate to one set of traders the access fees paid by another set of traders. This can create conflicts of interest in the market. Chair Gensler asserted that the proposal would ensure that traders can determine at the time of executing a trade the access fees charged and rebates paid by the exchanges. He concluded that this transparency would drive efficiency, competition, and fairness in our markets. Comment period for the second proposal closes at the end of March. The third proposal that appears relevant to CII membership approved policies was approved by a three to two vote of the commissioners. This proposal would require broker dealers that provide or receive payment for order flow to report on their compliance with a proposed best execution standard to be established by the SEC. Payment for order flow is generally guarded as a system whereby market makers such as Citadel Securities pay retail brokers to send investor orders to particular market makers' platforms. This may create challenges for brokers with the responsibility to deliver best execution for their clients. Under this third proposed standard, in any transaction for or with a customer or a customer or another broker, a broker-dealer would be required to use reasonable diligence to ascertain the best market for the security and buy or sell in such a market so that the resultant price to the customer is as favorable as possible under prevailing market conditions. Those rules also require broker-dealers to establish, maintain, and enforce written policies and procedures addressing how they will comply with the SEC's standard. They also would be required to review at least quarterly the execution quality of their customer transactions, compare it with the execution quality that might have been obtained from other markets, revise accordingly their best execution policies and procedures, including order handling practices, and document the results of the review. Annual reviews of best execution policies and procedures, as well as information about order handling practices, also would be required. Broker-dealers would have to document these reviews and prepare and present written reports detailing the reviews and the results to their boards. 
SEC Chair Gary Gensler said the new SEC best execution standard would enhance investor protection by providing for additional enforcement capabilities, including the ability to bring remedial actions and impose sanctions for violations of the new rule. SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, who voted against the proposed rule, criticized it for being unduly prescriptive and less concerned about whether customers actually get best execution than if brokers implement a checklist that the commission itself is not confident will help brokers achieve even better, much less best, execution. Public comment period for this third proposal will remain open until the end of March or until 60 days after the date of publication of the proposing release in the Federal Register, whichever is later. And the number one most significant development in U.S. corporate governance and capital market regulation for the period from December 2nd to January 4th occurred on December 14th, when the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission unanimously approved final rules that closed loopholes and enhanced transparency of executive trading plans in company stock. The adoption comes after the Council of Institutional Investors pressed the SEC and Congress for over 10 years to reform Rule 10b-5-1 trading plans. In a statement following the issuance of the final rule, CII Executive Director Amy Boris said, quote, the new rule closes gaps in the SEC's enforcement regime and allow executives to use 10b-5-1 plans as cover for insider trading. The SEC amendments will better protect public investors from misuse of these plans and strengthen confidence in corporate management teams and the capital markets generally, unquote. Under the new requirements, before executing trades under Rule 10b-5-1 plans, executives must wait 90 days after the adoption of or modification to a plan or two business days after the disclosure of a company's results for the fiscal quarter in which the plan was adopted or modified. Company employees other than executives will have to wait 30 days after a plan's adoption or modification before trading under that plan. Rules prohibit executives from using multiple overlapping 10b-5-1 plans. Directors and management will have to certify two items when adopting a new plan or modifying an existing one. One, they are not aware of any material non-public information about a company or its securities. And two, they are adopting the plan in good faith. More comprehensive disclosure of companies' policies and procedures related to insider training will also be required specifically including the following four items. One, quarterly disclosure on the use of Rule 10b-5-1 plans and certain other written trading arrangements. Two, annual disclosure inside trading policies and procedures. Three, certain tabular narrative disclosures regarding awards of options occurring close in time to the release of material non-public information. And four, tagging of these required disclosures. More than 20 years ago, the SEC implemented Rule 10b-5-1 to let executives buy or sell company shares at a predetermined time on a scheduled basis. Although it was intended to prevent executives from running afoul of the prohibition on trading on material non-public information, over the years, loopholes in the rule emerged. Press reports and empirical evidence suggested that insiders were adopting, amending, and canceling these plans easily and without disclosure, a recipe for fortuitously time trades while in possession of material non-public information. To prompt SEC action on this issue, Council of Institutional Investors submitted a rulemaking petition in 2012 urging the SEC to adopt revisions to the rule that would place restrictions on the trading 
that companies and company insiders could conduct under the rule. More recently, CIA General Counsel yours truly testified in June 2021 before the SEC Investor Advisory Committee on Rule 10b-5-1 plans, urging the SEC to close longstanding loopholes. We are very pleased that the SEC final rule achieves that result. That completes my monthly U.S. corporate governance and capital markets update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at cii.org. Till next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening.